Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen on, if you dare. <laughs> It's the Middle Ages. You live in a small village somewhere in what is modern-day France, and it's evening. Imagine the fog has set in all among the little houses of the little farming community. Some men come in from a hunt. They've killed a wolf. You see, some of the village children have gone missing recently, and so the village rejoices that the men have stopped the menace. They've found the source of the attacks. It's a wolf. It's safe again. Only it's not. You see, a week later, the bodies of three children are found ravaged and mangled just inside the forest. The wails of the village women are matched by the vows of vengeance by the village men. Tonight, they promise, they will find the real culprit. Somewhere in the distance, a wolf's howl fills the night. I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert on all things paranormal and monstrous. I'm a horror writer from the dark and haunted swamps of Louisiana. And it's my pleasure to welcome you into my terrifying world. Please check out my books on Amazon, beginning with Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story. That's volume one of the Gravediggers series. The Gravediggers are a punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of dark and evil and nasty creatures. It's horror and comedy in one super entertaining series. It's a six-part series. Three of the books are already available on Amazon. The, the next three, the final three, are coming soon. Let's talk Werewolf. What does that bring to mind? The full moon? Howling? Man turned to beast? Hunting, killing, out of control? Wildness? A naked person waking up the next morning confused, unaware of what happened? These are some of the main aspects of werewolfism, if that's a word, otherwise known as lycanthropy, from the combination of two Greek words uh, meaning with the meaning of wolfman. Some people say ly lycanthrope, I look at lycanthrope as the individual, while lycanthropy is the, the, the ism, the world-ism. So it's a form of shape-shifting, of course, which itself is a whole category of monster lore, which we'll explore at another time. But the difference is that legends of shape-shifters from different cultures vary greatly, include all sorts of animals and different uh, categories and aspects. But the werewolf lore, within reason, tends to remain the same throughout cultures and throughout history. The most ancient known written reference to a human becoming a wolf is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Of course, this was uh, an ancient Mediterranean tale, an epic tale. It was written in the Akkadian language, that's AKK, not Akkadiana as Louisiana, but Akkadian as Akkadia in the ancient Middle East, around the second millennium BC. Uh, likely it was written in other languages older than that, uh, or even, you know, it's probably a passed down oral legend in the area. But the uh, version we have is from the second millennium BC. So in the epic, Gilgamesh, he's the hero of the story. Uh, maybe he was based on a real historical king. 
he is pursued romantically by Ishtar, the goddess of love, among other things. So Gilgamesh rejects her advances. He says, no, the men that you've dated or that you've had a love interest in in the past, you've done terrible things to them. One of these poor sods was a shepherd, in fact, and he loved Ishtar, presented her with offerings every day, and at first she liked him, but she got bored of her shepherd boy toy. Out of what appears to be pure spite, she turns him into a wolf, <laughs> and his own herding dogs killed him by tearing him apart. Certainly an example of the concept of lycanthropy, but it differs from much of the other werewolf lore in that the man was instantly transformed by an outside force, not by bitten, uh, being bitten or attacked, and it was unrelated to the full moon. And then he's killed right away, so we don't know what he would have done if he would have lived. The next oldest reference to this lupine transformation was written by the Roman writer and philosopher Petronius. There were two Petronii, I guess would be the plural, uh, not sure which one of them is, is this one is, but it's kind of irrelevant. But uh, whoever he was lived during Nero's reign, that evil, crazy emperor Nero. And Petronius wrote a work called the Satyricon, around 61 Common Era. Uh, one of the stories involves a soldier named Nikiros. He and a friend are traveling to some distant town for whatever reason. And on the way, they need to pee. <laughs> Stop in a cemetery. Why in a cemetery? I'm not sure, but they have to relieve themselves, so they pee on the graves. <laughs> Out of the blue, his friend pees a circle around himself and tears his clothes off, turns into a wolf. He howls and then runs off and heads toward the nearest town. As you can imagine, Nikoros is a bit shocked, and he notices that his friend's clothes, which are now on the ground, have turned to stone. I don't know about the meaning of that. Um in the mind of the writer, but it had some meaning. And so, of course, he's terrified. He walks toward the town where his werewolf friend was heading. It's kind of comical because he's nervous and he's holding his sword. He attacks shadows and everything that he sees. But he finally reaches the town and a woman tells him, yeah, a wolf was here. It went on a rampage, killed a bunch of farm animals. But one of the farmer's servants killed the wolf by stabbing it in the throat. And, of course, that's the end of Nikodos' friend. Some interesting things about this tale it involves a cemetery. That kind of makes it a horror story, doesn't it? Uh, it involved, uh, um, you know, peeing on the dead, which was considered a disrespectful thing to do, a sin by Romans. It still is today, right? I mean, peeing on a grave is pretty disrespectful. So it associates lycanthropy with some sort of punishment for sin or maybe some kind of a curse from the gods. This is important because modern werewolf, werewolf lore does view the condition as a curse. Notice, though, that the werewolf is eminently killable with a simple knife, just stabs him in the throat. This definitely contrasts with modern and medieval European werewolf lore, which has the werewolf succumbing only to silver or sometimes to iron. Right? The silver bullet, so to speak. Of course, in medieval times, not a silver bullet, a silver sword, dagger, so forth. Silver-tipped arrow. Now, there were werewolf tales from all over the world, uh, I'm first going to focus on the European lore, since that's most familiar to most of my listeners, but I will talk about those of other cultures in the series, so don't worry. European werewolf lore is rich and deep. It spans Western to Eastern Europe, spans many, many centuries. And there were actually some werewolf trials, some real documented werewolf trials in the Middle Ages. We'll take a definite, definitely take a look at those as well. I'm not sure where to start, so I'm just going to dig in. This list of European werewolf lore and tales is not in any chronological order or any particular order. That's too much work. I'm just going to talk about them as they come to mind. So first, I think of the strange tale of St. Patrick and the werewolves. 
This was written in the mid-13th century. That places it in the high Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages. Many scholars believe, and I agree, that this tale was based on an older Latin poem from the 11th century. This poem was written in Latin by Patrick, Bishop of Dublin. Not same, not St. Patrick, just they happen to have the same name. The poem is found in the Latin work De Mirabilibus Ibernia, which means of the wonders of Ireland. So Ibernia, or Hibernia in English, is the Roman name for Ireland. The poem describes inhabitants of Ireland in pre-Christian times. Missionaries are still trying to convert them. Uh, so this translation of the poem, by the way, is by Elizabeth Boyle. I want to give proper credit to the translator. Let me read the poem to you. Beginning. There are some men of the Irish race who have this wondrous nature from ancestry and birth. Whensoever they will, they can speedily turn themselves into the form of wolves and rend flesh with wicked teeth. Often they are seen slaying sheep that moan in pain. But when men raise the hue and cry or scare them with staves and swords, they take flight. But whilst they act thus, they leave their true bodies. If any man harm them or any wound pierce their flesh, the wounds can be seen plainly in their own bodies. Thus their companions can see the raw flesh in their jaws of their true body. And we all wonder at the sight. End of the poem. Okay, keeping that in mind, the tale of St. Patrick and the werewolves, presumably based on that poem, at least in part, has St. Patrick wandering around Ireland, of course, that's what he's famous for, <laughs> trying to convert the people to Christianity. And of course, they are pre-Christian people at this time, having the religions of pre-Christian Ireland. Um, so this tale comes from the Norwegian work. My Norwegian is not great, and I think it's probably medieval Norwegian, but I think it's pronounced Konungskuksja. But anyways, translated as the king's mirror. And in the tale, St. Patrick comes upon a village of pagans. They don't like his attempted conversion. You know, it's kind of pushy, right? <laughs> Just to this day, uh, you know, missionary work. So they don't like him. So they decide to mock him. They start howling at him, howling at him like wolves and laughing at him, right? Well, apparently St. Patrick was not one to turn the other cheek. So he prays to God for divine retribution. God grants it by placing the curse of the werewolf upon the village. The people turn into wolves, and some of them turn into wolves for a full seven years before turning back. Others turn into wolves every seven years. A uh, little discrepancy there in the in the you know the mechanics of it. Uh, I think it's interesting. Back in the poem that that is based on, it says that these people can, uh, whensoever they will, turn into wolves. So we see that. In the poem itself, it was it was not based on the full moon or something like that out of their control. They could choose to do it. Whereas in the tale of St. Patrick, it was more of a curse that they did not want to do, but ended up having to, to do from time to time. Uh, yeah, so um, this is one of the first European or medieval tales that comes to mind about the werewolf uh, as a curse, right? As God's curse upon these people who mocked God's servant, St. Patrick. This idea of a curse is important because, as I mentioned, modern werewolf lore definitely has it as a curse. It's not something that people choose, but it is something that is thrust upon them. Uh, in modern lore, sometimes by being bitten by a werewolf or drinking water from the paw print of a werewolf. We'll talk about how people become werewolves in a, in a later part of the series and how they can be stopped how can they be killed and whether or not there is any way for them to become human again and to, uh, to cast off the curse of the werewolf? Well, 
uh, we're running out of time for today. So next time, we'll draw some conclusions about the tale of St. Patrick and the, uh, the werewolves. And we'll also talk about other European uh, werewolf tales. We'll continue that. And if we have time, we'll get into the French werewolf trials. If not next time, then the next one. Uh, but as for tonight, you know, if you're drifting off to sleep, you hear a howl from outside, perhaps something sniffing and scratching around your door, I recommend ignoring it and trying to go back to sleep. Until next time, sleep well if you can. Ow!